Welcome to episode 34 of Paper Talk, a monthly series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the field of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and today I'm talking with artist, author, and maker Amy Lee. Amy got interested in paper when she took a class about artist books at Oberlin College. She went on to focus on paper making at Columbia College Chicago, where she got her master's degree. It was there that she got interested in the history of papermaking, and when she learned how hand papermaking traveled from China to Korea to Japan, she got curious about hanji, or Korean paper. Amy grew up in New York City as the child of Korean immigrants, and she soon discovered that there wasn't much information out there about papermaking in Korea. We talk about how a prompt to answer the question, what is your life's dream, got her a Fulbright to study papermaking in depth in Korea, and eventually led to her book, Hanji Unfurled, which was published by the Legacy Press. Amy set up the first Hanji studio in the U.S. at the Morgan Conservatory in Cleveland, Ohio, and she's about to open her own Hanji studio in Cleveland in 2019. We discuss grant writing, crafting, and running a small business, and you'll learn about Amy's artwork, which includes Korean wedding ducks, hanji garments, and artist books. And we end with an overview of a new book that she's working on about people who make tools and equipment for papermakers. After all, we are beholden to these people who provide us with the tools to make paper by hand. Enjoy our conversation. Amy Lee, welcome to Paper Talk. I'm excited to talk to you, especially because I feel a kinship in the way that we work with paper. We both make art, teach, and write. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about these aspects of your work. How did you first get interested in paper? I actually didn't um, know anything about paper making until probably about grad school, which is pretty late. But I always, I think like a lot of other paper makers, was drawn to paper, but I was really kind of too busy um, trying to be a violinist, and, um, and I love writing, and I love books, um, but it wasn't until I decided to go look for book arts programs for graduate school that I found one in Chicago that required paper making, and then as soon as I started taking it, which was my first semester, um, I just totally fell in love with it. And that was with Andrea Peterson. So that was, it was pretty much doing nothing um, in terms of hand paper making and then diving straight in really deep. Uh-huh. And so that was at Columbia College, Chicago? Yes. And um, how, so you were interested in book arts, obviously, if you wanted to study that. So where did that interest get sparked? That happened when I was at Oberlin College for undergrad. And my last semester, I took an artist books class with Nanette Yanuzi, and she just opened this whole world, and they had a great collection at the library. And I just thought, this is this a medium that I didn't know anything about where I could combine text and drawing and images and ideas and philosophy and even performance and music and things that I was interested in all within this idea of what the book was. And so we actually did very little, we did almost no fine book binding. It was all just exploding the definition of book. And so I just love making artist books. And so I wanted to continue doing that for grad school. And then I went to this program that was actually 
in an interdisciplinary arts program and they really encouraged me to bring my violin and perform. Andrea really helped me create parts of performances with in the paper studio and so um, I love that idea that it was just kind of part of a bigger just you know what it meant to be an artist and express yourself in a lot of different ways. Right so can you describe one of these performance projects with paper that had a paper aspect? I had a show at the Chicago Cultural Center and I had the entire um, hall that was called Preston Bradley Hall and they use it for a lot of music performances because it has amazing acoustics. It has this gorgeous Tiffany dome, glass dome, and there are all these um, mosaics of old authors all over and it used to be the circulating room of the Chicago Public Library and so I had this idea of I wanted to fill it with stories and I wanted it specifically to be about journeys and the idea was kind of reclaiming the space as a place that books would come in and out of constantly and first I just thought how am I going to fill this whole space with paper it's it's a, a city block wide and then um, someone was saying well duh Amy you play the violin you fill it with sound that's what it's built for and so I um, created a paper train out of Abaca and so it was we we're making maybe four by four foot sheets and I would um, have it embedded with wire so they made kind of almost like huge flowery shapes because the wire was constraining the abaca as it dried and then I would hook them together and then hook them to my back and so I was and then there were all these streamers at the end and I was dragging this around the hall while playing violin but it was totally contingent on the audience coming in and out and there were other stations and they and it, they would have these pieces of handmade abaca paper and pencils and they could write to me stories about a journey they've taken and they would leave it in like another piece of this huge abaca, you know, exactly what was on the train, but it was just kind of almost folded like a shell, like a receptacle. And then I would stop at these stations and I would read what they had written. And then from that, I would improvise um, kind of a sound motif based on that journey. And then I would walk around, continue playing, and then I would stop and pick another one, and then I would just keep building. So because I was already trained in some non-classical, like, you know, jazz and improvisation, I could keep bringing motifs back and then, um, and just kind of building that kind of, those different sounds and stories throughout the, it was a three-hour durational performance. Cool. And was it a longer exhibit or was that it? Just that? No, it was that, it was, just that it was part of a bigger kind of one night festival of performance art called Sight Unseen that um, Julie Lafine had curated. And so it was just one night you would come and there were performances all over the building. It was really fun because everyone was doing something different. So you could kind of explore the whole space. And right. so it was, yeah, kind of one and done, but it was kind of, oh, yeah, it was almost like the theater, but the whole, every nook and cranny was full of different, different um, people from Chicago performing. Oh, neat. And then, um, so what happened with your studies and after that? Well, I got, um, I, it's funny because I went thinking I really wanted to make books and then I actually postponed the, the fine book binding part because I really wanted to take more performance classes um, and paper classes. But uh, I eventually, I, I mean, of course, I did all the book binding and letterpress printing and that was great. But I was really interested when we got into the history of papermaking, how it went from China 
to Korea and then Japan. And everyone knew all about Japanese papermaking. We were all really well versed in um, Tim Barrett's research. And Andrea, of course, did a section on Eastern papermaking. But because I grew up as a children of Korean immigrants and always in the space of people being like, oh, where are you from? And they would think that I was from China or Japan because at that time, Korea was just not that well known. And so this feeling of always being kind of in the shadows of these major superpowers was always very frustrating to me because I wanted to know what, what my heritage had to offer throughout history. And so I found um, research by Dorothy Field um, and Lynn Amley, and it was great because they'd been to Korea in maybe the 80s and 90s, um, and they had both learned how to make paper, um, but they had since stopped. They weren't making hanji, and then... I essentially just realized I had to go to Korea to learn more about hanji, which is Korean paper. And so I um, was really encouraged by Andrea and other teachers there to go ahead and apply for a Fulbright. And I didn't do it right away. I, I did wait a little bit. I um, got out of grad school and I did a lot of residencies and a lot of traveling. And then um, just kind of, it took a while because I was really serious about putting in a good application. So um, I mean, I had eight people read my, um, my drafts and of course, right. and this is a great thing. I want you to talk about the nuts and bolts because people listening to this might be interested in applying for a Fulbright. So yeah, I, mean, about I, I basically went when I was in Chicago, they have seminars, um, that they run out of their New York office, but then they webcast out to other cities. So you just go to this room in Chicago. We all be watching a video of the program officers explaining and then we would ask questions and I did that in Chicago and then I waited because I felt like I wasn't quite ready, you know, after I got all the information about what you needed to prepare for, for it's a giant application. And then um, a couple of years later, I was actually living in New York where I'm from, where my family is. And I went to that same meeting, but in person. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, okay, I feel like I have a better grip on this. And essentially because I was applying for a fellowship, that was not just a research one, but an art, a creative arts one. You have to do the entire research application plus submit all of your artistic samples. So the way they explained it to me is that if you don't even make the cut with your slides, you know, your artwork, they won't look at the rest of the application. So it really felt a little crazy that I was going to prepare all these essays and have, you know, possibly not even have it seen. The other issue is that it goes through many you know, steps. So um, you see all of the art, and then they decide if you're a good enough artist to even be considered. Then they look at your whole application. If they decide, the U.S. committee will look at it first, and then they'll send it on to the country that you're applying to. And then, the, so for me, the Korean committee had to look at the application. And so it's, it goes through a series of um, rounds. And there are two major essays, and one is um, essentially your... your um, project proposal and then the other one is kind of biographical sketch and and the, I had talked to a lot of people who had gotten Fulbrights before and they pretty much gave me the same advice as, which was you have to write it in a way to show that your the trajectory of your life is naturally leading towards going to this country to do this research not like oh I just felt like I wanted to go to Germany and do this random thing it has to really make sense within this the story of your life and so, like I said, I had eight readers, and what happened was I had the first seven said, this is great, you're done. 
And then the eighth reader was Tim Barrett. And he said, uh -huh. oh, this is a, um, this is a okay first draft. And I was like, what? And, and he said, okay, so this is what I would do. And he had a really good way of approaching it, which was um, to come up with headers, like headings, and then write under that. And then you could pull out the headings later. But he said, the key for me was, he said, what is your dream? Like, what's mm -hmm. your dream for your life? And I was, I was saying, well, um, that's, it's totally unreasonable. It's like not. And he said, it doesn't matter if it's realistic. Just you have to know what your dream for your life is and you write towards that. And so you have to get really, um, you know, really vulnerable with yourself to admit to yourself, these are the things I want to do. Because often, and especially like as a woman or as a person of color, people are like, you can't be so ambitious. But um, I really had to sit and think about what I wanted to do, not just what I thought would look good on the application. And to this day, uh, so of course it took much longer to finish the, the writing, but I'm glad, I'm so glad that I had his input. Cause I actually think I probably would have gotten it on the first essay, but it was that second go around that made me really commit to what I wanted to do. And when I, even today, which is like over 10 years app since I've submitted that essay, if I read it now, um, I've actually achieved pretty much everything that I wrote which is really incredible because usually as you, you might know, I mean, I know the way that I write grants is often you think you just write what you think they want and it's not necessarily what you want or it's just kind of like pandering. And, um, and I have so many, you know, rejected grant applications that are just like making up things that I think would be, that sound novel, but really aren't at the heart of what I want. So um, I think that was really key. So and I want to just say, I, I do think writing grants to your dream is really the right way to do it. Um, and don't you think sometimes, sometimes you have a time pressure and you just have to write it really quick. But I find, because I've written a bunch of grants too, um, the more I can go back and forth and reflect it gets more polished. Even a book proposal too. I just worked on a book proposal and it, I was really struggling with it, but I knew I had to just kind of let it come out. And um, then you get excited about it and, and you have a plan too. Right. If you get the grant. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that was what, you know, I think Tim's big thing was you have to, you have to re really make it clear to them if you know the language that you know the language. And I did. So that was a big plus. And that you have to show, you have to demonstrate that people in the country want you there. So you have to have contacts. And right. I did. So, right. so you're right. I had, I told, I had the game plan ready. It was just, of course, once you get there, <laughs> especially, um, actually, the, the more I travel, the more I realize every, every culture is disorganized <laughs> because people are just like that. And so you have a plan, but you get there and it doesn't, um, I guess in the end for me, it went according to plan, but um, not at the exact speed or order that I had wanted. But, in the, but you know, really in the end, it, it happens that way and it worked. Right, right. And so how long, so tell me the exact name of the Fulbright program that you applied um, to. I had applied to the U.S. student uh, program, which is um, for junior fellowship and I've already forgotten all the official okay. other pieces of it, but essentially it is for students, but you can apply. So I applied um, 
maybe I went to Korea a couple years after I graduated from grad school. So you can apply if you're recently graduated as an at-large student. So you can, um, you don't even, you, you can apply through your alma mater if they allow you to do that. And you, they usually do, but I decided to apply at-large. And it's um, essentially for students to go and spend a year doing research and um, it's related to like the ones that people use for their to f get um, finish their dissertation research for their PhDs and things like that. But um, but the creative arts ones are a little different in that you have that added layer of all the artwork and things that you need to send the slide or the images or videos and things. So um, and I know actually a lot of you know a lot of Tim's. Um, students have since gotten those and so like Tatiana Ginsburg and um, Steph Rue mm -hmm. and so it's it's definitely something that I hope more and more people in our field continue to do right so you went for a year I went for a year it's technically one academic year so it's more like 10 months but I had also gotten a critical language enhancement award because this US State Department which administers you know all of the Fulbright programs um, they have this, they have this uh, list of languages that they consider critical for U.S. citizens to learn um, that are not taught as widely, so they're harder to learn if you grow up in the U.S., mm -hmm. and so they will give you additional funding and time to go and do that. So I was able to do that um, and go three months early. I could have gone six months early, but I really just wanted to dive into the research once the fall hit. So but I was there in total for a year. Cool. So let's briefly discuss what you did during that year. And I know it ultimately led to a book, Hanji Unfurled, which is a wonderful book. And um, I'm curious to know whether you had that in mind as um, you were traveling. I think that I, you know, I should have reread the, the proposal. I'm sure I said that I was going to write about it, but I, I, at that point, was too scared to say I was going to actually write a book. I, I didn't want to commit to that. Mm -hmm. I did say that I would write about it. And um, I knew that I wanted to write about it. And from the very start, I did. I kept a journal. I had a blog. I kept really good track of everything I was doing. I took tons of pictures. I took a lot of video. I actually cut and edited video immediately when I was there because I knew that if I waited, I just wouldn't do it. And I was just so excited. You know, the people I was meeting, I was thinking, no one, I, you know, no one gets to see this ever. And so I just wanted to share with at least my circle, kind of immediate circle of people who knew that I was posting these. Um, I just wanted them to see what I was doing in the moment. And um, so I ended up, I think the first article I wrote was actually for Asao Shimura, who is a Japanese paper maker in the Philippines. And he always has these self-published um, kind of, he has these, a publication he called Kami, um, which is paper in Japanese. And so I, um, I don't know if he does it anymore, but I, and, and other people had written actually about Hanji for that publication in the past, but he asked me to write something. So I did. And then from there, I wrote a little article for like a Buddhism magazine because Hanji has a very close relationship with Buddhism. Um, and then and then it just kind of went from there. I wrote for hand paper making, and then um, I wrote for, you know, Bull and Branch for the Friends of Bernard Hunter. And, and I knew that essentially all of that was preparing me 
it was almost like I was getting little chapters ready for, for a book. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I felt some pressure, you know, people be like, Oh, are you going to write a book or are you going to write something? And I thought, Oh, I, I don't know. If I want to, because it'll be compared to kind of what's already out there. Um, and, and then I finally just got to the point where I was ready. I mean, essentially, I think it was early 2011. I had just moved to California to do a little bit of teaching for Mills College and their book art program. And I sent a book proposal to Kathy Baker of the Legacy Press in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And she immediately just said, yes, I want this book. Let's get sign a contract right away. And I thought, well, this is way too easy. This is, this, this is not right. I, and then, then I thought, you know what? I'm just going to wait. Let me wait because before, because I just sent her a few chapters. I said, I want to write the whole manuscript before you really say yes. So mm -hmm. she said, that's fine. And then I, of course, I didn't touch it for almost another year. Um, or maybe it was, yeah. So that was early in 2011. And then maybe in September 2011, around there, I started writing in earnest. I really, I put myself on a schedule. I said two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening. Um, and that's all I, like, I, there were times where I tried to force myself to write in the afternoon and I just realized the natural pace of my working schedule makes me like a useless blob in the afternoon. So it was a waste of my time. So I would write four hours a day and within two months I had a manuscript and I sent it to Kathy again and she said yes again. And in the meantime, you know, I had kind of reached out to a few other places and I hadn't really heard much and, and I realized, okay, do I want a publisher who really knows Korean culture or do I want a publisher who really knows paper? And I realized the paper piece was more important to me than having my romanization all correct. And so I ended up um, signing with Kathy and it was, the, it was great. I know some people are saying, why aren't you self-published? And I said, you know, for my first book, I want to go with a real publisher because there's so much, as you know, it's mm -hmm. a huge learning curve. There are so many steps and I'd really have, like to have the publisher deal with th that those steps and me not worry about it. And so um, it was a great experience. Um, she is so, she just knows so much. She's like a, such a treasure to our field. And so um, she's a great editor. She's a great writer. She knows probably more than anyone I know about paper making. So um, yeah. And so everybody, um, look up the Legacy Press. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, Kathy Baker, she's published, I don't know, a fewer than 50 books, maybe about 50, yeah. quite a few. Yeah. So I, I want to dive into the content a little bit and hear about your trip and about Hanji, mm -hmm. like um, how Hanji is made and then um, where you studied. So I, I had thought... Um, Really, my concern when I, when I first went was I just want to learn how to make hanji. And it wasn't even just, it wasn't just I need to know from beginning to end because I already knew a lot of the steps. My big thing was I needed to learn the sheet formation technique because that's the thing that no one knows how to do anywhere else. And that's the thing that almost no one does in Korea. Even the papers being made by hand in Korea, most of them are being made what at in what we think of as a Japanese style, even though it may have originated in Korea. So what I wanted to do was, was the Korean style that originated from China. So, you know, paper making starts in China. 
there are a lot of different styles in China and Elaine and Sid Koretsky mm -hmm. um, documented a, a lot of those. And, and if you look, you can see a lot of those precursors to how it would have turned into what it did turn into in Korea. And so um, I, I wanted to learn that technique, but then I, you know, I had to find a paper mill willing to take me. And I went pretty immediately after I landed to um, the Shinhyunse, who is um, down in the southern part of Korea, and he does all the conservation um, kind of essentially that comes out of that country. So Talis, um, Palestini, all the people who carry conservation hanji, it's all made by him. Okay. And so I went, and, and it was great, but I realized he speaks this dialect of Korean that I cannot understand. It's so strong that it sounded to me like Japanese, and I thought, oh my God, I don't know if I can study from him because I, with him because I can't, I can't understand what he's saying. And I also knew he lives in a town that's become really depopulated and there are very few young people and there's no place to stay. You know, there's no kind of motel or um, lodging. And so I'd have to live with maybe, you know, someone who worked with him. And I just thought this, and it's very remote and, and there's only one bus that goes back and forth to Seoul a day. And so I thought, okay, maybe that's not a great idea. And, and from there, I just kept visiting different paper mills. And essentially, everywhere I went, they'd, I'd say, can I, can I study? And they'd say, no. And I did. The first thing I did was, was go to the shop in Seoul of my teacher, who is uh, Chang Sung-woo, who, who was at the time the eldest son of the patriarch of a mill called Chang Jibang. And they were maybe an hour and a half to two hours north east of Seoul and so not that far from the DMZ and they um, they had been my sponsors originally for the grant so for the Fulbright and they had said he had said yes via email I will teach you but then when I went to the store his wife said no I can't let you go and I don't know who you are and and so I thought okay I guess this is a dead end and so I just went all over looking for people and then it wasn't until six months later I went to um, a demonstration he happened to be doing with his whole family with a, a, a papermaker from Uzbekistan and they were comparing um, kind of, they called it the paper road as, you know, like the Silk Road, papers from different cultures. And, and, um, and I was able to talk to him and, and ask, you know, I've been to this place and this place and this place. And they all said no. And do you know where I can learn this sheet formation technique? And he said, yeah, the only place you can do it is at our, our mill. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, why don't you just come, come visit sometime and see what you think. And so I made a trip out there. And then I said, yeah, this is great. Um, I would love to, to study here. And um, I think he said, all you have to do is find a place to stay. And we'll feed you. And other, you know, otherwise, just come and, and learn to make paper. And then it wasn't until I got there and I was actually, we were out in the snow in front of this wood fire and I think we were either steaming, we were probably steaming um, the paper mulberry trees that we'd already harvested. And we were just standing there. And he said, wait, did you email me like two years ago? And I said, yes. And he said, why didn't you, why didn't you email me back? Or like, or he said, why didn't you email me or get in touch when you got here six months ago? And I said, well, because I did, I went to your store and your wife said no. And he said, my wife says no to everyone. That's her job. And so, but then he said, you know what? It's probably, 
just as well because it was easier for him to say yes to me when I said, well, Wonju Hanji said no, Wonju traditional Hanji said no, and Shin said Hanji, you know, that all these people thought I was a crazy person. Um, so he, um, yeah, so he essentially, he taught me how to make Hanji, and then he was, he kind of felt, I think uh, there's a lot of this, um, and it's almost like benevolent sexism at play, like, oh, this poor young woman who's not married, who's here in the, in the winter and she must be so cold and not <laughs> properly dressed. Like I came the first day wearing jeans and they were like, tomorrow you need to wear real work clothes. And I was like, what, what are real work clothes? <laughs> and, um, and so he would say, okay, well that's enough for today in the cold part of the studio. Let's go to the box container and work on some other things. And the box container was literally like a box container that would go on a train, like on a train or like uh -huh. a boat. And, and in Korea, you can buy a box container and then you can outfit it. You, you outfit it with electricity and lights and windows and you make a little office, which what, that's what it was. And so it had a heated floor, like all Korean floors. And he taught me how to do chumchi, like texturing the paper. He taught me the um, rudimentary steps for cording and twining paper, which is chisung. Um, and he just... I think the more he saw that I was sticking with it and I was excited, I think all my teachers were that way. He just kept showing me more and more. So, um, yeah, it's, Korea has a very long history of paper making that starts almost 2,000 years ago. And um, so they used it for a lot of different things that they don't use it for now, which is why it's so, the market's not doing so well. But, um, but I was very, very fortunate that he... Um, that I, I found him at the time that I did, and also when his father was still alive and was able to also help me. This episode of Paper Talk is sponsored by the Red Cliff Paper Retreat, an annual retreat held at Helen Hebert's studio in the heart of the Rocky Mountains of Colorado every September. Enjoy three or five peaceful creative days in the tiny hamlet of Red Cliff, surrounded by mountains, the river, and aspen trees, as they begin to change their glorious fall colors. Experiment with several techniques as you create a variety of paper objects that will intrigue your eyes and illuminate your spirit. All levels of art experience are invited. The 2019 retreat theme is books, vessels, and containers. How do you store your stuff? Come explore a variety of papers that can be cut, folded, stitched, and manipulated to create books, tubes, pockets, envelopes, maps, bags, and more. Explore these ideas as you create unique paper objects with a dozen like-minded creatives. Find out more at helenhebertstudio.com slash retreat. Now back to the episode. Wow, so how long were you there? I was there, I was actually at Changjibang. Yeah, I was at Changjibang in the winter just for a month. Okay. And then, um, and then after that, I went back to Seoul. And before that, I had also been doing other, you know, I had studied Chumchi fusing paper with um, Kim Kyung, who had a huge collection of Hanji objects. And I was looking for all kinds of other people. And then um, after, after that, he actually insisted that I meet his Chisung teacher, which is how he had kind of learned how to do the chords and the weaving and um, I was really resistant at first but then 
um, I thought, okay, I've come and done what I've needed to, but of course I, you know, had more time left. So I ended up studying with that teacher for five, almost six months in Seoul. And I was living on my own in a studio apartment. I would, I would commute to him every, every week. And then in the process, of course, of being at Changjibang and also doing recording, I realized I needed to learn how to impart color onto the paper. And so uh, I started talk to, talking to my friends about wanting to learn natural dyeing. And I was pretty quickly hooked up with a teacher also in Seoul. And, um, and, and that teacher was not specializing in natural dyeing for paper, kind of the way, you know, like Tatiana did was with a studio where they really specialize in, in how to dye paper. But he was very open to me experimenting. So I could bring the hanji I had made and I would figure it out myself. You know, we kind of figure it out together. And then um, very early in my stay, I had met a calligraphy expert who, you know, in kind of one of those drunken, like, it was one of those, I can't even remember what the gathering was for, but it was a lot of people just eating dinner and he was making a big fuss. Like, if you want to learn about Hanji, you need to know about calligraphy because that's the whole reason they made Hanji. And, and at the time I thought, okay, that's nice. But it wasn't until I got back to Seoul and I had all this paper I had made and I started to, I had actually a subscription series when I was out there. So I had people who, um, had paid for year-long subscriptions so that maybe every three months I would send them something of, you know, of what I was making. And so one of the pieces I decided to do was um, ink on Hanji. And once I started actually using ink on Hanji, I realized, oh my God, I have to find this calligraphy teacher again because he's right. This mm -hmm. is the whole, I mean, this paper takes ink so much better than any paper I've ever used before. And it just... Yeah, so so then I studied with him for my last month that I was there, and um, so it was really kind of a, a a process of going and kind of following the leads, and even if I was resistant to some things, the most important things would eventually come back, um, mm -hmm. and um, so it was, yeah, it was definitely not organized like that from the start, but I'm really grateful that that's the way it turned out in the end. Yeah, yeah, and so... Your book is kind of uh, what do you call it? A memoir, a diary? I, you uh, know, I yeah, I don't even I don't think of it as a memoir, but it is kind. It is. It is. It's basically a documentation mm -hmm. of what I did there, and I try to weave in um, a history, and I try to weave in um, stories, essentially about the people that I met and the teachers that I had, and almost kind of an homage to all of them who made it possible for me to, to learn all these things. So the idea was to try to get as much information out about what I learned as possible without making it just seem like a textbook, because I actually didn't, I wasn't interested in doing that. And I also wanted it to be really clear that this is from my perspective. Right. And I'm not um, an ethnographer. I'm not a historian. I'm not um, like a technical specialist. I'm an artist and I'm a papermaker. I'm a person um, who is essentially part of the Korean diaspora. And so they're, they're, you know, it's very uniquely from my perspective. And so I want, to, in the hopes that actually there would be more books from other perspectives. And so since that, actually, there is a book that um, Lee Sung Chol uh, had translated. For, he had a book out um, about Hanji, but it was all in Korean. So... I believe um, it's something like everything you need to know about Hanji. 
um, there is a now an English language book of his research, and he had done twenty years of you know just going all over the countryside and studying with different people, and he's an art professor in Seoul. But um, yeah, I mean, I knew that he had set up a studio. He never let me see it, but. Um, obviously, I was really inspired by what Tim Barrett had done in Iowa, this idea of going to Japan, coming back, and, and kind of recreating as much as you could for an American public and for students, for non-Japanese students to learn and really appreciate Japanese paper. And so um, I wanted, and of course, his book was, an insp I, there was no way I was going to make something like his book, because he is very good with the technical stuff. But I was really inspired by Suki Hughes's book, um, mm -hmm. Washi. I just thought it was so beautiful and like the drawings especially and, um, you know, obviously the photographs were important, but I, I wanted to try to, to make it, I guess, into more of a relatable story. I mean, it is, you know, it got uh, awarded um, in the reference category for the Eric Koffer Book Award. So it is considered, I guess, a reference book. Um, but I didn't want it to be really dry, I guess. And, um, yeah. And again, I, I have, I have friends who are like, you know, real scholars. And so I don't, I didn't want to pretend that, that this is some kind of heavily footnoted, you know, um, kind of book, but it's, um, yeah, it's really a distillation of, of that experience. And then the epilogue goes into what I did immediately afterwards, which was, build um, the first Korean papermaking studio in the U.S. at the Morgan Conservatory. So it was, you know, this idea of just, again, bringing all of this information home. Right. And it's a fantastic book. And it's still available from the Legacy Press. Yes. Correct? Yes. yes. Good. Yeah, so definitely buy it from the Legacy Press and not Amazon because it's too expensive on Amazon. So <laughs> don't, don't fall for the Amazon prices. Okay. That's Buy it from no. the Legacy Press, and if and and they have discounts for libraries and nonprofits, so you should take advantage of that. Cool, cool, cool. So let's talk about what you're doing um, now and since then in America to bring Hanji to the masses. Um, yeah, I. You know, it's funny when I was in Korea, my natural dying teacher, who was hilarious because he he loved me because he knew that I was a pretty much a, like left wing in politics and because I was related to a now deceased past president of Korea, South Korea, mm -hmm. and who he adored and he was part of a, essentially at the time, the resistance party. And so um, he said, you know, the reason that the United States is such a great, powerful country is that it sends its citizens out into the world, uh, you know, like on a Fulbright and has them take the best parts of other people's cultures and then they bring it all back to America. And, but in a way, it's really, it's really true. It, it um, I mean, I'm not going to talk about what's happening now, but, but there, at that time, there was a real sense of um, how much you can learn from the people out in the world. And for me, it was so important to essentially fill in this gap that we had in papermaking history, that we had people working on Japanese papermaking I wish actually we had more people right now working on Chinese paper making, but we did still have that. You know, Elaine's book came out, Killing Green, um, a few years before mine. And so, or uh, maybe even, yeah, I don't remember if it was 2007. But so I, I wanted to be able to fill that in. And I thought, you know, the best way to do that is I have to be able to teach. And so 
first I just tried to get, tried to teach and lecture everywhere I could, every, anyone who would take me. And then um, pretty early on, the Morgan had said, oh, that sounds great. And um, just we'll keep you on the mailing list. And then they asked if I would teach a workshop and what my supply and equipment needs are. And I said, well, I'd need a really big vat. And they said, okay, sure, we'll make a really big vat. And I thought, you would make a really big vat for a two-day workshop? And I thought, wow, this is a, a weird place, but um, let's just run with it. And I said, okay, well, I need more than a really big vat, um, but let's do this. I'm going to raise money on my end. You raise money on yours, and let's build out the whole studio. And because they had already gotten a Kozo um, garden going from cuttings, <laughs> from Tim's um, from his plot in Iowa. And so they already were interested. They did, just didn't have an outlet for the Asian paper making. So and they let's, were- Let's just mention that this is the Morgan Conservatory. I know you mentioned it yes. before, but yeah. in Cleveland, Ohio, Ohio. And it's a huge facility that yes. has room also for- Right, for exactly, right. Yeah. So they, they were really dedicated to paper making, book arts, um, printing, at, and, and Tom Balbo was the founder and the artistic director now. And he, um, he essentially wanted to, to be like his experience at PBI Paper Book Intensive, that he got to have just kind of people coming together and doing this thing that they loved. And so he started this plot um, and they just, they, he had some equipment and it was a lot of Japanese equipment. And so we, I essentially used a, I used Kickstarter. They got some private funding um, for materials. And then they, we had this huge crew of volunteers and it was an amazing summer. It was 2010. We, it, we built it out in five weeks. I taught a workshop at the end of that five weeks. And then every year I would go back and teach and, um, yeah, it became pretty much the place to go if you wanted to learn to make hanji. And um, I think in 2013, I decided I would, because at that time I was still living in New York, I w it was kind of felt a little ridiculous to go back and forth between those cities. To, to And I thought the best way for me to really focus on hanji would be to move to Cleveland and you know, we were talking about writing grants and I told myself, I'm going to give myself six months and apply for everything I can find grants, fellowships, jobs, you name it. And if I don't get anything, it's a sign that it's time to make a change. And I got all rejection letters and I decided to move. So um, I went and I approached them and I said, I'll um, for like pro bono, I'll help you write grants to basically help you get the money to pay me to be here. And mm -hmm. so we were able to do that and get a $50,000 matching grant from the county, which was actually using cigarette tax um, money for the arts. And so um, we, it was a $100,000 uh, project for that year and we wow. were able to expand it because so it, instead of just being Korean paper making, kind of more Asian and Eastern paper making. And then, um, so I did that for a couple, I, you know, I did that for that year. I did some more work for them the following year and then I left so that I could pursue other, I really wanted to focus on um, really what I care about, which is not just Hanji, but also kind of East Asian traditions and how all of, all of these things are actually globally connected. So like if we think about the bark that we use to make the paper, what were people doing with it in Polynesia and South America and Latin America and, um, and Africa and the Caribbean and how that all connects in ways that we don't think about because we're so kind of focused on our 
maybe on our own thing. And so um, it's so funny. It's actually like oh, the Morgan almost in its limitations was still too broad for me. You know, it's like, I didn't want to have to, um, I wanted to really just have a space where the Hanji vat was always up and mm-hmm. always there ready to go. Um, and not worrying about, you know, running some other unrelated classes. So, um, so right now I'm in the process of building a new studio in Cleveland that will be dedicated to, it'll be my space to make hanji and do all East Asian techniques, but then also for open for small workshops, there's going to be a gallery space. Um, and then we made sure to have Southern exposure on this building so that we can also grow. You know, not I actually don't even mind if we don't grow the paper mulberry trees. I'm more interested in using native plants and, you know, you know a lot about that as well, about using plants that are around you, they're local. Um, and so um, I think Winifred Lutz, had, has, she has this amazing appendix in Tim's book yeah. on Japanese paper making that talks about this idea where a Japanese paper maker said, why are you importing fiber from around the world? You must have plants in North America that would work for Japanese style paper making. And it's true. And so my favorite plant is milkweed. And so I... And there's, it's abundant here. You know, people are happy to get rid of it. So I've been using milkweed for, for years now. And so, um, and I think it was last fall that I was able to make a whole batch of milkweed hanji. And it pulled actually even nicer than paper mulberry. So. Wow. And you yeah. have a little book. Is that little yeah. book still available? I yeah, just, it is. I just ran across <laughs> it in my studio today. It's a very sweet book. And where can people get that? That you'd have to go to my website and it's in, it's in the writing section. Unfortunately, I don't make it very easy for people to buy things because I, I just hate dealing with all the web design, but um, people can just contact me and I will do it through PayPal. It's it's um it's essentially a little zine, a little comic about uh, milkweed paper making. So it's geared towards people who already know how to make paper. Mm-hmm. It's about all the steps of how to identify and harvest, when to harvest, how to process, what parts of the plants to use, and how to get it ready um, to make paper. And and um, the deluxe edition has a little paper sample of milkweed. But it's I love it. It's a very versatile fiber and it, it looks so different um, depending on, you know, what part of the plant and when you harvest it. So, yeah. And I love that you're um, going to explore making hanji with um, native plants. That's yes. Something. And so yeah. where is the studio? Is it at your house or is it separate? No, it's a separate building. It's, so it's a commercial building that's um, in kind of biz- a business district. And then um, it'll be, it'll hopefully I mean, it's right now we're in the kind of architect phase, the drawing phases, yeah. and um, it'll go soon to the city for approval and, and then, you know, all that back and forth. And then, but definitely um, at some point in 2019, it'll open. And then, um, and then uh, the great thing is I'll be able to have dedicated internships and apprenticeships so that people who really want to learn more intensively can come and do that. And, um, right. and then there, yeah, so... And you've talked about these innovative funding methods. So how <laughs> I'm curious how you're funding. <laughs> if you want well, to that, share. that one is basically, that one is, I was very, very lucky to have essentially an angel investor come in okay. and yeah. So, and fund the building and the construction, but um, otherwise I had, um, 
I've done a lot of different kinds of grants, you know, either small family foundation or, you know, like the Fulbright where it's a government thing Mm -hmm. um, or um, like Kickstarter, all the um, Mm -hmm. crowdfunding. And I did sign up for fiscal sponsorship and I actually just um, shut down my membership because I just thought this is, it's a little too much pressure to feel like I always have to be looking for some grant, but fiscal sponsorship is really useful for some people because what it is is you as an individual are sometimes not able to apply for certain grants because they're only for nonprofits that are incorporated as such. And so if you um, go through an intermediary that already has a nonprofit designation, you can then apply for grants that are reserved for them. And they're usually bigger, bigger, bigger grants. So, um, I really, I really wanted to do that. And then I, I just, um, yeah, things just kind of went slower than I want, than I thought. And I've also talked to some other really interesting people about maybe nonprofit is not the way to go. So, um, like Zaya Mays out in Western Mass, um, Liz, oh my God, I forget her last name, but she, um, started this print shop that is pretty much the, hub now for green paper making people can go there and learn all about how to do non-toxic print making and then they also will send people out to your print shop to teach you how to convert your shop and zygote press in cleveland got a grant um, to do exactly that so they've shifted into green printmaking. and so liz has created this amazing business model where she actually said i don't want to deal with fiscal sponsorship because they take a cut of your money that's how that works um, and she said, I want all the money. And if I can make it work that way, this is a business. I need to make money. And she, but she said she always only bit off as much as she could handle. So it started with one press in her garage and she had a full-time job. And then she would transition slowly. You know, you slowly go to part-time, right. get another press. You actually get a building. And eventually she got to the point where she could be working and employed by there and her husband, I think. And then they were able, with the support of all the community members that had you know, essentially want to have a space to print um, safely, they, they all pitched in and they actually bought a building. And, at, and um, so it's really, it's great. And now they have, you know, space for um, workshops, for, for community members who pay to be, to, you know, who pay to have access for residencies. And so I think it's a really smart thing, you know, mm-hmm. for, to mm-hmm. realize that you don't have to be beholden to only so thinking people will only donate to you if they get a tax write-off. You know, I think people are still, a lot of people are willing to forego the tax write-off. So, um, yeah. Oh, yeah, I totally believe that. And I do think, um, yeah, you build a business. It takes time. It's not just, you can't just, uh, it doesn't happen overnight. Not, but yeah, as, yeah. as you build it, you, um, yeah, you, you, you make more money so that you can, experiment with different ideas and work towards different goals. That's cool. So I want to talk a little bit about your artwork too. So tell me about your artwork. And uh, I think you use this cording technique. I can't remember. Yeah. It's it's called Chisung. But is that, is that, um, is that um, unique to Korea? Yeah, it is. It's something that um, they were doing Korea. They, there are examples in Japan. It's, you know, I try not to get too much into, or I haven't gotten into the, like the serious scholarship that, you know, that I would have to, I don't have the language skills. Like I can't, 
I don't know Japanese. I don't know classical Chinese. Um, I don't have the language skills to try to get into the point where I could say definitively, it started here, this started there. But um, the Koreans, I think what people don't know often is that a lot of things would start in Korea and then move to Japan, whether it was just from regular trade or contact or whether it was just from aggressive Japanese coming and kidnapping people and taking them away and saying, teach us everything you know, which they did with paper makers, they did with mm-hmm. potters. They, and so um, it's something that, but it's something that I've seen a lot of examples of um, in Korea. And so they would essentially just take pieces of paper and it came out of, you know, being frugal and, and you, you didn't just go to the store and buy paper. So if there were off cuts from books, um, you just have slivers of paper and you start twisting them. And they already had basketry um, as part of the vocabulary in Korean craft and life. And so you could just apply basketry techniques to this paper instead of using kind of raw fibers. And then they could make things out of paper that they could then waterproof with different kinds of, you know, they could use natural lacquer, which comes from the sap of lacquer trees, which grows all over certain parts of Korea. And then or you could use persimmon, fermented persimmon juice. And, um, and then you can use these things like we use, um, you know, plastic essentially mm-hmm. these days. And so this is all before plastic and the nice. industrial revolution. And so, um, so I, I, I learned how to do this technique and it's very, um, actually, I just, I just saw my physical therapist and she really wants me to stop doing it because she said it's really bad for my body. But it's um it's really hard it's mm-hmm. really hard though it's also very it's very simple like the the idea of it is so simple um but it's really hard to do well and so what i learned to do were to make traditional objects because my teacher was really interested in taking historical objects and looking at them and then being like okay let's copy it um and so i started by making chamber pots and um like a lantern and um what was the last thing? I don't even remember, but it was all based on actual things that Koreans would use. And then, of course, once I left Korea, because I'm an artist, I just made whatever I wanted. So, mm-hmm. um, so I would make, but I still kind of, it kind of stuck with the, you know, I would make gourds and different kinds of containers and I would just play with different colors and um, proportions. And, um, and then it wasn't until I think, a few, several, a few years after that I saw, I saw that they used to actually make wedding ducks out of hanji. And so in Korea, there's a tradition that you actually give a carved wooden pair of uh, ducks. So male and female, and they're carved out of wood. They're painted to look like Mandarin ducks because Mandarins um, mate for life. And so it's to promote marital fidelity and fertility. And so I saw this version, um, an image that was all woven out of Hanji. And I thought, oh my God, this is just so, well, first of all, it just was very funny. It was a really weird proportion duck, but it was very clear what it was. Like if you know what wedding ducks are, you know, that's what that was. And, and so I, I wanted to make one and it was really hard for me to do it based on the techniques I already had. And I tried really hard and my first few versions were really weird. And then I finally, um, I got a grant to go back to Korea for three months and, mm. and go back to my teacher and say, okay, this is what I want to do. Please help me. And he said, okay, um, now you just basically need to learn how to make these curves. And 
So he taught me some, some more advanced techniques, of course, all by teaching me again how to make traditional objects. So then we were, made a teapot and that would teach me how to especially like that. Then I could sprout wings off the body or open the beak. And, you know, he taught me how to make a kind of asymmetrical gourd that you would drink water out of and that then I knew how to kind of shape the head. And so um, I di I've been making a lot of these ducks and they're kind of the most popular things lately because of this kind of connection, like I've had a lot of people actually get them as wedding gifts and mm -hmm. then, um, but they just have been really, um, it's just really interesting because you think that you know what it's going to look like and then it very much, the duck as it grows is very much like, oh no, like I'm going to just become what I want to become. Uh -huh. um, so it's been, and it's been a great way to kind of integrate um, you know, in the beginning, I would just make them out of plain hanji, and then I would dye them. And then over time, I would play with using dyed cords so that I could build in the color right away. Um, so, and then there, you know, that went into figuring out other kinds of issues. Like as an artist, you have to be able to display these, and some of them would kind of fall over. So uh -huh. first, I started weaving nests out of palm leaves, and then I luckily, when I was teaching at Haystack one summer, the Small Metals Studio had a um, teacher who, and we collaborated on a piece for the auction, and he made a little brass stand for the duck. And I, I thought it was so great that I, um, I decided to keep trying to make my own. And now I have, you know, I, I know how to do it on my own, but I also found a great, because Cleveland has so many artists, a great steel worker who's an mm -hmm. artist, but has a he was a professional mount maker for a museum for many years. So I can also just hire him to make them. But um, so that's, that's one, you know, like one piece of what I do. I've been making a lot of um, garments out of Hanji. Um, and then I've still been doing a lot of, or maybe not a lot, but going back into doing artist books. So it's kind of like going full circle where I, I've been making a lot of garments, like dresses that were out of Hanji that were, um, a mix sometimes just western dress but then also Kore based on Korean dress forms and it was all based on the inspiration of a student uh, a teacher I had in Korea who told me that this was what the purpose of learning chumchi was so that I could learn to make garments and so um, I started doing that but then this year did a uh, an edition of artist books um, called uh, Peculiar and Commonplace and I based it on a few different themes, but one of them was looking at old um, needlepoint instructional manuals from Ireland in like the 19th century. And there was an image of a book that had been sold at auction, which literally had a dress that was sewn into it. It was like all folded up to fit into the book. And then you open the page and it was just kind of open. Mm -hmm. And it, on, on the facing page, it said, oh, how to sew the bodice and like a little mini version of the bodice. And I just thought, oh, I can sew the dress into a book. And so um, it's not just that, but it was really gratifying to that I had this idea for years to and um, to finally make it and then have it pretty much sell out almost immediately and I mean it was a very small edition but I have I had two dealers and myself working on it and we were able to move it pretty quickly so um, that's been really really fun to kind of to kind of go back and like because for a while I wasn't making books and though I knew it was kind of, it was, it's always there. It's just like people always ask, like, do you still play the violin? And I say, no, but if I wanted to, I could pick it up and do it again. So um, you never know where, where, when it and where, you know, it's going to resurface, but 
Yeah, yeah, I love that. I I'd, I spend years thinking about things before I actually yeah. manifest them, and so I totally can understand that. Um, okay, we need to wrap this up, but so tell me your email, your website address, so people can look at where you're teaching and where you're exhibiting, because I know you exhibited quite a bit as well. Yeah, it's uh, amylee.net. It says A-I-M-E-E-L-E-E. -E -E, and you can also go to the .com. I own that domain too, but uh, okay, Yeah. Yeah, and I know you're working on a new book. I just want to hear just a... Yeah, so the new book I'm researching right now, and it's all about people who make tools and equipment for papermakers. So looking at people who make molds, who make beaters, who make... Hand, you know, all the way down to hand tools like mallets to beat fiber and then, you know, all the way up to major pieces of equipment um, like hydraulic presses. Um, and so I've been traveling around the U.S. to do this. There are people I need to meet in Canada. I'll be going to Europe in March to interview some more people. I have another grant out. Hopefully I'll get it and I'll get to go back to Korea and Japan to visit some people. But the whole idea is that I want we are so worried about paper makers, but I'm more worried about people who make our tools because we can't do anything without them. So yeah, that's what I'm, that's, that's the next book. <laughs> Excellent. Do you have a publisher for that? Yep. The legacy press. Yeah. Great. Great. <laughs> great. Well, Amy, it's been such a pleasure talking to you and thank you for everything you do for our field. It's amazing. You're welcome. Thank you. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper, featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at helenhebertstudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com to receive my e-newsletter. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed it, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps other people find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Paper Talk, where you can find out more about them Subscribe to the series via iTunes and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. I'll talk to you soon. Besides the season.